you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22 today. Kim, will you go ahead and blow those out? Those are supposed to be 12-hour candles, and obviously they lasted about 25 minutes. So uh, we will be getting, sending them back and getting new ones. Uh, we're going to be looking at what has been described as the hardest text in the Bible to deal with uh, today. So please have your Bibles open and follow along as much as you can. And the reason it's so hard is because it seemingly says one thing, even though when we look at the context, it means something else. We, I preached through 1 Peter before, as I told you, and it was at my first church, and I was in charge of the search committee. We did it in the, in the midst of while they were looking for a new pastor, and we were down to two pastors. And me and some of the pastors really liked this one guy, and the deacons and some of the others liked the guy that had been there before and that had used to be the children's pastor there. And it just so happened when he came, he wanted to preach our series, and this was his text. And so he got up there and he looked at the congregation and said, well, I want to thank Jensen for giving me the hardest text in scripture to preach. <laughs> well, joke's on me because I have to preach it now. Um, the, we're going to see three predominant things, even though we're going to see quite a bit. We're going to see three predominant things in this text. The first thing we're going to see is the suffering servant. We're going to see that Jesus was the one who died in our place. We have the most full picture of the gospel. The atonement is pictured in verse 17 and 18. It's a beautiful picture. Then we get to some harder things to deal with. And we're going to see the vindication through victory. It says Jesus went down and proclaimed, he preached to those in prison. And you have to ask the question, well, who are they? Why did he go there? All these questions we're going to try and answer this morning. And the reality is it's, it's split among theologians. There's at least five different perspectives, and I'm going to give you what I think is right, but there's many different perspectives on this. And the final thing we're going to see is absolute authority. We're going to see that Jesus, in his death on the cross and in his position today, has absolute authority to save you and to keep you according to his grace and mercy. Stand with us as we honor the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to us, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which we we went, he went and proclaimed, and went he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patient patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you with this difficult text, as we seek to understand things that are, for the most part, hidden from us. Father, I pray that you would be with us and you would guide us according to your mercy. 
I pray that you would help us see your goodness in this and you would help us see your grace through this. Father, let your spirit fall upon this place that we would have understanding and that we would see who you are and what you've done. It's in your precious son's name I pray. Amen. When you're raising kids, you, you, have, you have in your head what a parental victory looks like. And then you have kids. <laughs> in your head, a parental victory looks like having polite, obedient, respectful children. And that would definitely be a victory. But it's also a, a, a far cry from what we often see. Sometimes, a parental victory looks like a kid failing ten times. And learning from each of those. And growing in each of those. Sometimes, they look like your kids being willing to talk to you about the things when they've messed up. And come to you when they know they've disappointed you. Sometimes, the parental victories don't come till much later. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at in our text this morning. We're looking at the victory that Christ had that wasn't fully realized until the cross or even the grave. You think of the Old Testament and you have time after time after time that God calls these people his own. He calls them his friends. He calls them his people. And yet they continuously, time and time again, fail. Walk away and do exactly the opposite of what they were called to do. The cross and Jesus dying on the cross is the answer to how God is both just and the justifier of our sins. So look at the first point. The suffering servant. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So we ended with this last week, but I didn't have much time to go into it. I just want to briefly look... If we must suffer, we must suffer. We, we suffer for being zealous for what is good, verse 13. We, we want to make sure we're not just suffering for doing the wrong thing and then saying, oh God, why have you persecuted me? No, we are suffering in the same way Christ suffered. How did Christ suffer? He suffered while being perfect. He suffered while doing what was right. He suffered while doing that which brought the Father honor. His char our character, our conscience, and our conduct should all be good. So that when we suffer, when we're persecuted, when the government or those in our household or those uh, in our work look down upon us or yell at us or tell us we're crazy, they can look at our good works and they will be put to shame, it says. Now, it's one interesting thing I wanted to pull out of this. It's a, a little parenthetical statement in the middle of verse 17 it says if that should be God's will if that should be God's will sometimes it is God's will that we undergo persecution you remember John the Baptist John the Baptist Jesus said was the best that humanity had to offer and yet when he's in prison Questioning what if, if Jesus is the Messiah, he says, aren't you the one that made the blind see? Aren't you the one that made the deaf hear and the dead raised? And Jesus said, yes, I am. Well, the next verse in that is set the prisoners free. And Jesus doesn't respond to that. Why? So John the Baptist had served his purpose 
had pointed people to Christ, and now even through his death, God was going to get the glory. Sometimes it is God's purpose that we undergo, in God's will, that we undergo suffering for the sake of Christ. And remember last week, it said we should be happy about it. So let's start there, and then look as we get to these five things, how Jesus did this. Five things accomplished by Christ's suffering. The first we're going to see is that his sacrifice was capable. Five things that we see of the atonement. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Not many times over, not going out to go into every day, every week, not even going to every year like the Old Testament prophets or the Old Testament priests did, but one time forever. It was capable to do it once and for all. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, as we get prepared for Easter, we'll be hearing this a lot. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You see, it's not he died once and that, that, that's good enough for you to come to him, but not good enough to keep you with him. It's capable and it's sufficient for all. It's sufficient for all your sins. I, I keep asking this question that I'm borrowing from J.D. Greer. He said, how many, how much sin have you committed when Jesus died on the cross? None. And yet he still died for you. How well did he know you when he died on the cross? Intimately. Even though you were the thought in your parents' eye, he knit you together in your mother's womb, the psalm says. And he loved you. It was capable. It was sufficient for all. We, we, we have to ask how it was sufficient. It's just one person dying. Yes, but the worth comes from his deity. He was God. And as God, he is sufficient for everyone in this room and everyone that would come to him in the world. But as man, he could stand in our place for us. The second thing we're going to see that is accomplished by Christ's suffering, it was out of compassion. Continue to verse 18. The righteous for the unrighteous. It's often said that... Well, Jesus said, scarcely would one die for a good man, but no one would die for an evil one. Well, guess what? Jesus, the righteous, the holy, the one who had never sinned, died for you. Knowing your sins. Knowing that you were unrighteous, that you were, Romans 3 tells us, a hater of God. Knowing that Ephesians 2 says you are following the, your father, the devil. He died so that you could have life. He died so that you would be brought to him. Romans 3.26 says this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just. He would be righteous. He would, he, would, he would be the one that would remain holy is what that means. And the justifier. So the justifier is the one who pays for your sins of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, it was out of compassion because no, none of us deserved it. It was out of compassion because what we deserve is the wrath of Almighty God. And what we get is the grace and the mercy the peace. Pastors understand it. Third thing, it was complete. It was complete. That he might bring us to God. He died on the cross. 
that you no longer had to be far off. He died on the cross that you could be brought into the family, not as a servant, but as a child. He, he died on the cross that you would, be, you would be wrapped in his goodness. Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly over and over and over since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin and by, by the sacrifice of himself. It's sufficient. It's complete. There's nothing else we have to do. There's nothing we have to bring. All we must do is we must submit to him. The verse says, have faith in him, that, that we would turn to him, that we would trust in his name. Fourth, it brought conquest over sin. Conquest over sin. Continuing the verse, being, being put to death in the flesh. What thing? That, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. What's he talking about? Is he talking about you actually dying? No, of course not. He's talking about your old nature, the old man, as Paul writes, is being put to death. The new one has come. The old things that we used to love, we now hate. The sin you once loved is now despicable to you. Romans 7 says that he does the thing, very thing he hates. And he doesn't do the very thing he loves. What is that? That's the flesh and the spirit waging war within us. But through Jesus, he has laid to death the old self. So when we come to him, we no longer come to him purely as flesh, but he implants the spirit of God within you that you can have life. I want you to see that. The punishment for death is gone because of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Jesus died, all the persecution that the, the, the people in the first century, uh, the, the first that Peter was writing to in this letter, could rest in assurance because their death would just bring them, bring them greater joy. Because as Paul says, the absent from the body is present with the Lord. And he goes on in the flesh for, for your sake, but the, the part is far, far better. The final thing we're going to see in this first point, this final sub-point, is it cultivated life. It cultivated life, but made alive in the spirit. So something died, but something else was brought alive. Something else is brought by Ephesians 2, verse 5. says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up. See, I want you to see that when we come to Christ, on the cross, what Jesus accomplished is your salvation. And when we come to him, that salvation is realized. When you submit your life to him. But it does take you doing something. You must submit. You must turn to him. We, our, our, our flesh is put to death and the spirit makes us alive, but we must turn. So how does this all fit in the context? It shows us that our suffering is worthy because Christ's suffering was sufficient. Our suffering is worthy. Worthy of what? According to this, 
blessing. You will be blessed in the suffering that you experience. These, these first century uh, disciples were experiencing on every side. We may just be starting to feel the pressure of the persecution here in America. Just starting. But these disciples were feeling it from everywhere. From every which way they turned. And yet Jesus said, don't worry about it. My sacrifice is sufficient. Trust in the Lord this morning that his sacrifice is sufficient for you. For whatever you may be going through. For whatever struggles you may be processing. For whatever you may be living through in your own personal life. His mercy and grace is sufficient. Second thing we're going to see. Now we're done with all those sub points. We have a couple more sub points. This vindication through victory. Now, basically what we're going to see is verse 19 through 20. And so I'm going to summarize it, and I'm going to give you maybe a few different ways people see it, if I have time. And then we're going to just try and work through it. So this is where it gets sticky. So this says that when, he, when Jesus died, he went and proclaimed, which is preached, to the prisoners... Well, what's he mean by that? Well, some people think that the prisoners are those that passed away in Noah's day. The people that passed away in Noah's day. He went and preached and gave them a second chance. We see that nowhere else in Scripture, and I don't really see that here. Some might say that this is the, the saints of the Old Testament that were died and then went to, to Sheol, the, the grave, and Christ was going down and proclaiming victory that they that now that to die is to be with the Lord. Because Christ hadn't died yet. That's how it was taught to me, honestly, and I, I don't see that. This is this is what I think it's saying. I think it's saying that these there, there are spirits which are demons, fallen angels, that have been locked up, and he's going down there to proclaim something. So we're going to work through that. But before I get there, I just want to read a quote from Martin Luther, who was the great reformer. He said this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know what a cert cert for certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> so if you don't understand it, Okay, Martin Luther didn't either. All right, so let's get into our questions. First question, what did he proclaim? Look at verse 19. He went and proclaimed. What does this mean? This literally means to preach. That's why some people would say that this means that you're preaching the gospel to people that have died once and he's going and giving them a second chance. The problem is, it's not the right word. It's not the word euangelion, which means preaching the gospel. But it's the word that he, he proclaimed, he preached to them. But what was he preaching? He wasn't preaching the gospel. He was preaching victory. He was preaching victory to, to, to these people that are in prison. We'll get to what that means in a minute. But I want you to, to imagine, I take this, these to be fallen angels. Imagine the, the fallen angels, the demons' celebration when they saw Christ on the cross. Remember their reaction to Christ when, when he's there on earth. They're shuddering and running away. Is it our time? Please don't put us in the pit. Well, now Christ, if, if I'm right, which is a big if, but if I'm right, Christ is going down 
to their lair, and he's proclaiming victory. He's saying, I died, but yet I live. I died, and my kingdom is coming. He's proclaiming victory to those who thought they had won. It's a vindication of his victory, even after death. So where is he proclaiming? Well, it says to the spirits in prison. Revelation 9, which if you're coming Wednesday night, we just went through. In Revelation 9, the, the star fell from heaven and gave the keys to someone. And they went down to the pit and let, unleashed the pit. So this mixed with that, mixed with what he's about to say about Noah, going back to Genesis 6. What happened in Genesis 6? Yeah, I told you, good. this is a confusing one. You have to track with me. Genesis 6 was, was the flood. And before the flood... You had the sons of God mixed with the daughters of men. And you had the Anakim. Uh, and so you, what, that, what most believe that is, is it's these fallen angels that have been so corrupted, so far gone, so disobedient, that God wiped them out and put them in this prison. So what, what, what I would hold to and what many hold to is that he's going down and preaching to those angels. Some that were so despicable, so wicked, so far gone, that they're locked in, in this prison until the end time of Revelation 9. So he's going down there. Third question. Who is Jesus proclaiming to? I just answered that. But, but it's they, they formally did not obey. So it's these, these, these fallen angels that all fallen angels had disobeyed God and were, were seeking their, themselves. But there was these special sect that were, that were especially heinous towards God. And so he's going down and preaching this victory to them amidst his death. That he would have us. What's his victory? His victory is you. You are his victory. You are the one when you come to Christ. He has won you by his blood. Next question. Why were they there? Look at verse 20. For God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So, the, the actual flood took about a year, right? Forty days, forty days, and you're up in the ark for a long time, and then forty days for it to go away. It took about a year. The building of the ark was 120 years. Through that 120 years, this gospel was being preached to the people. You need to repent. You need to turn. You need to trust in God or you will be wiped out. And they're all looking at him like he's crazy. And so why were they there? Because they, these, these spirits had twisted the minds. In fact, in, in Genesis 6, it said there was no one righteous. It had become so wicked and, and distraught. And it was because of these fallen angels that they, they, no one would turn and come. And God's patience had waited because these fallen angels thought that they had won. What was the name of this, this one? Vindication through victory. They thought they had won, even up until now. They were in prison, but they thought they had done what they, they, they thought they were going to beat them. And then they see Jesus dying on the cross and they think they won. And Jesus comes down and he proclaims victory to them. What's the main point of this? Just as Jesus was vindicated so too will these Christians be vindicated through the work of Jesus. Jesus 
through the, the through the death on the cross and going down to the, this this pit this this prison was vindicated of his holiness and his justice and his and his victory. We as Christians, because he won, we will share in his victory. Because he won, we will share in his victory. Leads us to my final final point. Verse 21 through 22, we're going to see absolute authority. And this is, we thought we were in mucky water there. Well, now let's look at this. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. No, what? We're Baptists, right? Baptists say baptism is a symbol of what God has done in you. But this text says Point blank period, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So do, should we all stop being Baptists and join the, the Christian church? Or what should we do with this? Well, we should look at the context like I teach you to do with everything else. What saved, what, what saved the people in Noah's day? What, what saved them? Was it the water? Did the water save the people in Noah's day? Noah? Not the ark. Thank you, Noah. The ark's sake. The water was the means of judgment. So if we just look at this and we, 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 we don't look at the context, it looks like the waters of baptism saves you like the waters of Noah's day saved you. But the problem is the water of Noah's day didn't save you. The water of Noah's day was the judgment towards them, towards everyone else. It was the ark that saved them. So baptism literally... Immersion corresponds. Now, this is the, uh, this is the word antitype. It's an antitype, which is an earthly expression of a spiritual reality. So, the baptism, the, the, the engulfing, the immersion now saves you. So, the question is, what, how does it, how does it correspond to it? If, if the waters of Noah's day was the judgment and the waters of baptism is what symbolizes our salvation, we believe. John MacArthur said this, water is the agent of God's wrath, not the means of salvation. They were saved in this story despite the water, not because of it. So then how is it connected to baptism? How is it connected to baptism? It's not, as the text continues, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism, I would make the argument that in this text that seemingly says baptism saves you, it also says it also says that it's an appeal for good conscience. So what that means, it's a symbol. So which is it? Is it the actual baptism which saves you, or is it a symbol? I know this is this is probably going over all your head. It's been going over my head all week. But that's okay. So so the question is, how can this be? How can baptism both save you and be a symbol? Well. Once again, the context. What were they immersed in in Noah's day? The ark. We all said it earlier. The ark. The waters of that day were judgment. The ark was the immersion. So, what are we immersed in in, in the New Testament? Christ. The ark is an antitype for your salvation in Christ. According to the context of this. Because it's not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God. 
It is Jesus who, when you come to him, you are immersed in his life, his death, and his resurrection. You are immersed in his blood. Why? So that when God looks at you, he, he says, you're clean. You're made new. You're made new. John McCullough said again, this is not referring to the water of baptism, but figurative immersion into union with Christ. Christ, with Christ as the ark. It is an ark of safety from the judgment of God. So, I do want you to see here that baptism and salvation are very closely united. But even according to this, baptism is not that, not that which saves you. It's the baptism in Christ that saves you, not the actual ritual of baptism that saves you. You can go get dunked and take a bath anytime you want, and you are technically immersed. Right? You're immersed in water. It doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you. Only Jesus will, will wash you from your sins. Baptism, the ritual that we do, is an expression of that reality that we have. I hope you're also sufficiently confused. <laughs> Look at verse 22. It says, who has, it continues, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Place of honor. Continue. With the angels, authorities, and the powers of heaven, or powers having been subject to him. So the question is, why does it end here? So we, we, we this, this text, thrown in right here in Peter, might have you wondering, how did that even get there? Why is that there? Well, it's, it's to show us the purpose behind suffering. Christ is sufficient. And because Christ has gone before you, and Christ has immersed you in himself, and Christ has won the victory, that means that you have already won. You have already won. I want you to see that the, the, the context of this is governments, work, family, persecuting you. And they can come from anywhere, but Christ's authority is complete. He is, though he died, at the right hand of God the Father, place of honor, place of authority. He is with the angels, authorities, and power all being subject to him. His complete victory is our complete victory because we are immersed in Christ. I hope you see that. I hope you see that. As we finish this text, it may have brought more questions than answers. I apologize for that, but if you have questions with this, Please come and talk to me throughout the week. Text me. I don't care how, how you get a hold of me, but ask me these questions because this is what my sermons are is 35 minutes of about 15 hours of study. <laughs> so I obviously can't give you all of this. But three applications I want to make as we finish. They'll be up on the screen. First, our su suffering compared to his suffering. When, when you think about the things that we, we experience, because of Christ. When you think about the, the problems we have maybe experienced because of Christ, if you lose a job or you have chosen your family because of it, or whatever that may be, you try and witness it, they, they, they think you're crazy and they don't want to be your friends anymore, they don't want to talk to you anymore. Compare that to the suffering of Christ and see that no matter what happens to you here, it's finite, it's fleeting. The things that really matter are the things that are eternal. 
that Christ has done for us. Number two, our suffering compared to his victory. His, who, because he was victorious over death and the grave, because he was victorious over, over sin, because he went and preached to the prisoners, because he sits at the right hand of God the Father, because he has authority over all the principality and the authority in heaven, because he is God and he has stood in our place, we can have hope and assurance. His victory is our victory. I want you to see that. Finally, our suffering compared to our reward. Our suffering compared to our reward. Jesus said, don't lay up tre treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy. But lay it up in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. Our victory, our reward when we are in the midst of suffering is great. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of God. All these applications are to put suffering into perspective. Christ was more, Christ is more, and forever will be more. Amen. Praise God. If you, you're here today and you've not submitted to him and you've not been immersed in Christ, I invite you this morning, come and surrender your life to him, that you would have all the blessings that he's won for you. Let's go, Lord, and pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. That you are the good God that watches over us and that cleanses us from our sins. The God that, that shows us mercy and the God that has, has gone before us and won the victory for us. Father, I thank you for who you are. That you are a good God. And that you are working here in this place. Father, I pray for anyone here that may not have truly surrendered to you, may not have truly been immersed in you, I pray that you would immerse them today. Let nothing get in their way. Let nothing stop them from turning to you with their life. It's in your precious son's name I pray. Amen.